Shalom, Jim. Shalom, Jerusalem Lights. Shalom, Rabbi. How are you doing, sir? You're looking well. Thank you, sir, and you as well. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. And of course, this month, the month of ER, is the month of healing. So it's a, it's a good time for us all to get well because of this propensity during this month for us to turn to Hashem and ask to be healed and to work on ourselves towards healing both the physical side because the, this is the month where the manna began to fall mm -hmm. and that is a key to healing, that concept. And on the spiritual side, since the entire month is taken up with the intense spiritual workshop of the content of the Omer and all of the levels of, of uh, our personality that we're trying to refine during those days. So ironically, Jim, considering that this month is is literally predisposed from on high to healing. And that's really our spiritual preoccupation during this month. You know, I, I think about that and I, I try to make sense of the fact that at the same time, as time progresses, and maybe I'm just sen sensing it a lot this month, but the world seems to be in the throes of the opposite of healing. The yeah. world seems to be in the throes of a certain kind of spiritual illness, really. And of course, we know that all spiritual illness comes from the concealment of the divine presence. But, uh, you know, there's a certain kind of uh, fabricated man-made despair that is insinuating itself into everybody's life, you know? In other words, yeah. you look at the news all around the world, conflicts and hatred and killings and senseless, horrible things that are going on. And at the same time, people feeling more and more that they're being controlled, that they're not, uh, they're not being uh, given any opportunity to, to, to express themselves freely, that, they're, that there's a certain kind of agenda that's been set by powers that be that are, that are uh, you know, in position to, to um, strengthen their, their hold over, over society. And then there's all sorts of questions that people have about identity, whether it's the spiritual identity or, or, their, or the, again, the manufactured husk, Amalekite type of husk of, of this, the, the transgenderism and all the things that are going on that are undermining the basic bedrock of, of uh, the nobility of man. And it's, it's, society seems to be crumbling all around us. Yeah. And I actually, I'm very inspired to speak about this whole idea today with you because uh, I see a certain kind of theme that connects between uh, some of the incredible ideas in our Torah portion this week and the time that we're living in and the season and the, and the month, and especially with the tremendous climax that we'll be observing this very week on Friday, uh, I believe the 5th of May, the second Passover. Yeah. And the theme that I, that I want to put forward to you is, is the opposite of, of this um, dark kind of um, uh, despair. And the, the, and the theme that I see shining through for every person who really believes in Hashem is hope. There's a certain kind of universal hope that, we're, that basically defines our humanity and that we're called to, I can prove it to you too, from, from the Torah itself. And it's like there's two forces that are, that are pulling people apart right now. This, I, this feeling of like desperate hopelessness and, and, the, and the beckoning promise of Hashem 
that we should never give up hope. And, and I'll just say one more thing and then I'll give it over to you. But the, my, the diving board that, I, that, I'm, that I'm taking this from uh, is, is a, an email that, that I got from, from a dear woman that I'm in corresponding with about some important spiritual things. And I'll leave out the personal aspects of, uh, of what we're writing about. But the, I got an email from a woman who was feeling hopeless and felt as if Hashem were rejecting her, God forbid. And again, leaving out the, the, the personal aspects of why she's feeling this way, she wrote that she feels like she feels like Hashem doesn't have a place for her in the world and that um, she, she doesn't find herself in the world. She feels distant from Hashem. And, and I felt so, and I still feel so churned up about that, that I wanted to... Um, to speak about that because I think that this affects a lot of people, this kind of this kind of feeling, and I think that it is it's actually uh, an agenda, you know, mm-hmm. that that's being that's being foisted against us from every quarter. A certain kind of of hopelessness. So just just what is the dis- definition of dystopia? Right, dystopia. It comes from ancient Greek, and it basically it's a contraction. Like I think of two words. It means bad place. Right, but it. It classically denotes, and this is the Google definition of dystopia, an imagined state or society where there is great suffering or injustice, um, like synonyms are nightmarish, <laughs> terrifying, gloomy, hellish, and Orwellian. And how many times have you heard in the past few weeks from various pundits how many times have you heard that word used to describe the society that we seem to be catapulting towards Orwellian? Oh, it's invoked all the time. I mean, I think we've invoked it a couple of a few times because it is. We're seeing everything. It's as if they're, you know, using or- Orwell's ideas, which he was against in 1984. Uh, it's almost as if they're using his playbook. Uh, my the one I noticed the most is is Newspeak, and Newspeak was a way of of couching of using language that uh, that took all of the uh, what they considered the damaging or the alarming aspects of of a word, and it was a way to excuse me for saying so spreading disinformation, and uh, I think I saw this come up. First time I, I ran into the, the Orwellian phrase of, of newspeak was uh, years ago after the Kennedy assassination because the, uh, they talked about people who uh, were actually lying to the government, but they didn't describe it as lying. They described it as, um, now I've forgotten the phrase. <laughs> um, Okay, because I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking in this realm before we got started. Uh, I'll, I'll remember the word; it'll come back to me. But um, okay, I'm going to stop the show if I sit here and try to think of the word. But there's a word that they use instead of it. Okay, mm-hmm. and we're we're being bombarded all the time now with with words because because there is a segment of our population these days who who are uh, triggered by words now. Right. So they have to they have to change it and they have to soften up the meaning and they have to but but by doing so they're subtly changing the impact of the word and they're and they're and we're getting to the point now where I tried to read an article the other day and it was uh, it was a mainstream article about someone who about a, an actor who's in an upcoming film 
He's a, he's a young man and uh, apparently having a lot of problems. He suddenly has, has uh, identified as non-binary. So I'm reading the article, Rabbi, and every time they mentioned him or an action that he had uh, been involved in, the, the word used was they. And, and it was very confusing. And I think this is, this is another part and parcel of it, because what was amazing to me about this state that you're talking about, especially this whole uh, uh, thing with, with the confusion of genders and everything, the other countries around the world right now are laughing at us because they're not going through this. And, it, and if anything, it feels, it certainly feels engineered. It's, this is one example of, of what I'm what I'm trying to what I'm trying to focus on, and it's only one little aspect. But the, but there is a feeling of some sort of just to use the word conspiracy. That's not what I mean. But there's there to, there is a feeling of an organized assault on hope mm-hmm. because the glue that binds society together that always has bound society together is coming apart in every in every uh, area and the world again seems to be becoming more dystopian more violent more intolerant people being more and more controlled and there is a there is a an atmosphere of despair that that is really um taking over for many people and i think that on a deep level our Parsha this week, uh, Parshat Amor, beginning in chapter 21 of Leviticus, I think actually on a deep level addresses this very, very idea oh, because, yeah. because, because the truth is that what we're in this world for all of us, um, Jews and non-Jews, every, every person who's created in God's image, which is the whole world, the, the glue that really holds us together in this world is a universal hope because what is the promise what is, what are we all looking forward to in one way or another redemption whatever mm-hmm. that means everyone defines it differently and last week in our podcast about Israel Independence Day we we had a different kind of uh, take on what redemption is all about right it's about recognizing hashem and it's a, and it's and it's about uh, all people really being united that's the that's the ultimate prophetic vision of redemption but of course, it's, it's an idea of love and peace and purpose. And, 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 uh, and the thing is that the opposite of that, in other words, there's a universal hope that we pray for, that we, that we are looking forward to, that it's a, a positive mitzvah to, every day to be hoping for Hashem's redemption, right? Salvation, not in the, in the non-Jewish usage, but in the idea that Hashem basically will deliver us from ourselves and, and will, uh, will um, illuminate us with, with an understanding of the, of the eternity and the immortality of the human soul, right? Because the opposite of this hope that I'm, I want to talk about with you, that we need to get back to, that's the deep underlying message of the Torah and of the human experience. The opposite it is what? The opposite is the fear and vulnerability of death mm-hmm. and the and the idea that that people have, which is again an illusion, the idea that life has no purpose because it's finite and it's just uh, some sort of a cosmic wrinkle because we all die anyway and there's nothing else, right? Mm-hmm. And so the parsha opens up, and we've spoken about this before on, on, on several occasions, but the, the concept of the kohanim that are serving in the holy temple, 
who do not who are not allowed to become exposed to death right the death for them is a source of c- contamination as it is for everyone because the truth is that all of Israel is also not supposed to be right. exposed to death except that it's inevitable and in, in the case of a close family etc so a person has to has to go through that but the, the kohanim that are serving in the temple are never allowed to participate in the whole process of what everyone else goes through when they're when they're dealing with a death, and that's because they are supposed to be the champions of hope. I like this expression. I love this expression. I just made it up. <laughs> the Kohanim that are serving in the Holy Temple, in addition to clearly being the conduit that brings God's blessing into the world, they are the champions of hope because they don't pay attention to what what the great Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cohen Cook refers to in the in the most beautiful the most beautiful descriptions of, of exactly what I'm what I'm trying to say he has in his beautiful three volume magnum opus the lights of holiness he describes how death is a lie right and that's why it's impure this is his expression he says that he says the impurity as it were of death is the fact that it's a lie because it, it it the effect that it has on everyone is that is this is this terrible forlorn sense of hopelessness and despair because that that's it right we and that is an illusion because it's only the body but he he actually goes further and in a very extreme way describes death as being a graduation Right, we're in the we're here, and he turns the whole thing around, and he says that that what's death? The power of life becomes so great that it can no longer be contained mm-hmm. within the physical boundaries, and so it's yeah. like reminiscent of of the holy Rabbi Nachman's last words when he was lying on his deathbed and he was suffering from tuberculosis, and he was in you know his his body was racked with with tremendous suffering, and he said to the students that were around him, he said he said. Um, my uh, my soul can't can't stay in this body anymore. I I crave for expanses. Mm-hmm. I crave for expanses. Rabbi Cook said something similar. So, so the idea is that the Kohanim, they're like, not going to go along with the ruse. We all have to go along with it because it's death and taxes. Right? Yeah. That's that's how, this is the world that we live in. We live in a world of boundaries, and occasionally we have a, some sort of glimpse into the reality of of the eternity of the soul but but the priests that are serving in the temple they're like they're not going to have any part of the of the game they're they're not going to allow themselves to be contaminated meaning to be affected by this by this debilitating illusion what wasn't rob cook that told the parable about the two infants in the womb i believe i'm not sure please he, he, he says one of well you you've you kind of you're alluding to it already I believe it was Ralph Cook who said that he taught a parable. Said that we should there's there, there are these twins in the womb, and one of them is one of them believes in the here the here the, there's something they're in this sealed warm dark environment. They're they're fed continually by the you know the the umbilical cord, so they have everything they need, and one of them. Uh, knows that eventually they, they're, they're getting they're hearing sounds and one of the infants is uh, always sort of hopeful and joyful because he's looking forward to to leaving the womb and the other feels like it's going to be it's going to be the end of his life because neither one of them knows quite sure what happens 
when they're going to be, they know they're going to have to leave. And one compares it to death. I'm going to have to leave all of this, this comfort, this this comforting darkness, and I don't want to see what happens when when we leave. And the other one's like, no, no, it's going to be better. It's going to be it's going to be better. And so one the the one that believes there's something better after the womb. He's like he's like ready to go, and he goes out the birth canal, and the one that's that's still behind hears the cries and goes, "Oh my God, he's dying!" You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then the first thing he hears as he's coming out of the womb is Mazel Tov. It's a boy, you know. And this is Rob Cook compares our existence on the earth to being in a kind of a womb. Right. And as long as we as long as we believe there's nothing after that, we're 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 we fear this. We have a darkness that we are that we allow to envelop us, and and it's right, and he's, so what he's saying is is that 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 when we die it's 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 a, it's a rebirth actually. Exactly. In, well, we had Rabbi Kastner, Rabbi Doctor Kastner. We just on the talked program, about that. And that's yeah. exactly what he was talking about. Yeah. That it's it is a, a reset, a rebirth. But again. Is it a world of death or is it a world of life? And the, and the, this in general takes us back to a hallmark of uh, of Torah. You know the principle that everything about the Torah experience, if we, if you will, Judaism, everything about the the whole mindset of Torah is a celebration of life. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there are other philosophies and, if you would, religions, as it were, that are literally a celebration of death. You know, you you'll, ne you'll never find a um, a Jew who says, I can't wait to get into the next world. But I've had a lot of people say, non-Jews say to me, I can't wait to see heaven. I can't wait to go to heaven. You'll never find a Jew who is plugged into the Torah who says, I can't wait to get to the next world because that's like enough at its time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when the time comes, we can talk about that. Yeah. You know, when the time comes, hopefully th that, will be, that will be the case. But right now, every moment that you're alive, you have to celebrate being alive. And, that, and that's really what what Torah is all about, and that actually connects to the fact that uh, a major theme in this Torah portion is the festivals, right? Because that's the festivals are are literally an expression of a celebration of of Hashem in the world and 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 life, our lives. But getting back to the Kohanim and again connecting the whole thing as we have, uh, you know in the past to the paraduma, the red heifer and the whole concept of there are things that I don't know in this world there are things that I never will know there are things that I don't understand and that's the secret of purity in Numbers 19 that's the the, the uh, quintessential chok the, 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 the epitome of the, of the type of commandment that we don't understand that's above human comprehension is how the ashes of the red heifer restore the, the balance of impurity from exposure to the, to the concept of death, to the lie of death, again, as Rav Kook says. So, so, so I, I think it's amazing that we read this Torah portion during this month and during this time of the counting of the Omer. And the idea is that, that the backdrop here of the, of the Kohanim in the Holy Temple who are not supposed to become exposed in general to, to death is that they are standing up as a bulwark, as it were, for, for hope. Because the, and as if, I, if I want to be extreme right now and, there's in, in, and look at it in a, in a polar sense as two exact opposites, there's this hope that I'm striving for that I want to talk about now with you, that I, I have a lot more sources that I want to show you about the Torah's enshrining the value of hope as being the, literally 
the hope, the basis of everything for mankind. But the very opposite of that, of course, is is death if a person's worldview is that that's the end. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the Kohanim are coming to demonstrate that doesn't have to be the worldview. That's not, it's not true. But again, that there's this is a prevalent kind of thought in the world today. It's becoming for many people a world of death, really, a, a, a finite world of bad choices and suffering. And this is the opposite of what Hashem had in store for us. So, so you know, uh, the chapter of, of Leviticus 23 here in our, in our Parsha, Parsha Tamor, is that shows us the whole cycle of the year of the sacred seasons of Hashem. And that is this, this um, divine plan of infusing this hope into the element of time. Because we always talk about the space-time dynamic and how we are, we are living and, and resonating with time. And so the, all of the messages of all of the Chagim are messages of the eternity of the soul and Hashem's redemptive plan for all of humanity. That's what all of the festivals are hinging on. And Shabbat, yeah. every week, is the, is the recreation of the world, is the revitalization of the world, is the, is the new soul, as it were, of Shabbat that comes into, into the creation every week. Yeah, and it would seem odd that there would be there's supposed to be a connecting thread between this uh, this talk of death that that uh, is uh, faced by the Kohanim and how they they are uh, they are supposed to respond to it in a very different fashion. Yet the, the it's connected. It, the Torah parsha almost seems to veer off and and leave the subject of what seems like a very serious subject, and it is, and then goes into the um, description of the Hagim, of the festivals. And, and I think what, if our audience will look at that and go, okay, that's a, that's a signal, that's a flag that Hashem is waving at us to say, it, it, it's, it almost seems to be a contradiction, but that's a signal to us that there is a deep connection between these two concepts of the idea of the, the Kohanim are required to, to maintain their joy so that they can, because because the, it's like we learned last week. There are there are levels of holiness, and the the uh, and, and with every level of holiness, there is much more required. The closer you get to Hashem, and the Kohanim being the very closest to Hashem, uh, so much more is re- they're they're required. We see in this Torah parsha to and, and previous ones to maintain a, a peerless physical and emotional st- uh, state because they have to do the daily offerings and everything. And so with the, with the narrative veering off and then going into Shabbat and all the festivals, it makes sense because we understand how the Mishkan is, again, a microcosm of the world. And the it is a physical world that the Kohanim, uh, a segment of humanity, actually will inhabit the area close to it. And it's a model for us, is the closer you get to Hashem, the more He wants you to experience their kind of thinking. Exactly, exactly. So, so what is the book of Ayikra? And He called. What is the book of Leviticus? Mm-hmm. It is the book of sanctity. Okay. And it's the book of, 
of living with Hashem in our midst, right? All, the, all of the rules for, the, for how to conduct the service in the Holy Temple. And we find here the, 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 the laws of the forbidden foods and relations and all of the things that render, that can bring us sanctity into our lives, right? Mm -hmm. And so, again, the, if I'm looking at the Kohanim as being handpicked by Hashem through Aaron for this mission of bringing Hashem's light into the world, and I'm calling them the champions of hope, right? And like you say, they're an example. The way right. that the average person can also um, grab onto this ray of light and, you know, the, the Kohanim are like... Are like um, you know, uh, warriors against despair, and they have like lightsabers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we'll speak about that again later. Lightsabers, mm -hmm. right? So, what's yeah. our our lightsaber is our is our way of life, and so whatever it is that they're able to achieve by ignoring the illusion of death, to some extent, we can achieve, even though we are more finite and more and more limited, and we and we do have to go through the throes, as it were, of of this part of life, you know, and deal with the, with being a survivor and deal with understanding that the, the soul goes on. But, but, but our, our uh, lightsaber, as it were, and our way of, of emulating that level of the Kohanim is through our observance of the festivals. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. that's the beauty of, that, of this chapter following it, because again, we are able to infuse into the time of our lives, literally into the time of our lives, we are able to infuse a, a buoyancy, a rising above the mundanity and, and the despair of, of, of life by understanding the cycle of time, mm -hmm. because it's all it, it connects us with with the with that greater purpose and with the with and with the inter, eternity of Hashem. Yeah, and that that aspect of time is. Uh, is directly connected, of course, to the festivals, and it, it again it sanctifies and makes time holy, and and it because it is connected with the Mishkan, it, it's uh, it, it's there's a little bit of quantum mechanics in there because it's a lesson that time is what brought the physical realm into into reality. It literally act. It literally. Every, every it formed around the concept of time. If if there was no time, you know, there would be no there would be no physical realm, no tangible realm. And so, in this parsha, we're seeing that God says, you know, uh, I want you to maintain the same kind of balance that these priests do, that they are connected through that, because even though they have to maintain that positive aspect emotionally and and and, and spiritually. Um, it, it is still connected to the festivals, which are all times of joy. Every one of them, right? They're all joyful times. And all of the, everything that we're saying is for every person, and that's why it's so important for me to, to relate this. And, I, and again, like the, this wonderful lady that I was writing with and her, her sense of feeling um, distanced from Hashem, that, that is a terrible thing to feel, and no person should ever feel that way. And that's, that is an underlying principle of, of Torah, for, that every person is very special and very important to Hashem. Mm -hmm. So just to take this a little bit further, this whole concept of, um, of hope and what it really means, the, the Torah's concept of hope, because again, I just feel that this relates so strongly to the to the force that we're all up against in the world that's literally bombarding us all the time. There is a there is a very deep 
dystopian negativity that is being beamed at us from from cell towers, very very strong frequency that we are that we are um, being made to uh, endure of of a certain kind of hopelessness. So you know we speak about the importance of psalms, how how the psalms were were instilled by King David with a, a certain kind of prophetic. Um, a, a, a message for every person and that how the Psalms are our greatest tool for drawing closer to Hashem. Uh, King David included his, his heartbeat in the Psalms. And so in, in um, Jewish circles, the concept of reciting the Psalms in times of distress and as special personal prayer and when a person has a, a particular you know, uh, burden and person is ill and it's a, it's literally a, a powerful spiritual tool for drawing closer to Hashem, Mm -hmm. the whole concept of, of the Psalms. And that is a, a, a study in itself. And we've had many zoom classes where we've been focusing on the power of the Psalms, uh, as, as personal prayer. But I want to point out several, several, um, sentences that, for example, Psalms 40, which is a very, very important chapter because it's uh, really all about, um, well, let me turn to it even and, and speak to you about it from while I'm looking at it. So Psalms 40 is, um, there are many themes that reverberate of, of hope in it. It's beginning with the first sentence, for the conductor by David a psalm, I have greatly hoped for Hashem, he inclined to me and heard my cry is the English translation of, the, of this first verse. I have greatly hoped for Hashem. He inclined to me like he leaned to me and heard my cry. But in, in Hebrew, really, there is what we call a double language, a double expression, because the Hebrew words are kavo kiviti Hashem, which literally means I have very, very much hoped. It's like a, it's like a, a powerful expression to use the word twice. So it's translated here in English as I have greatly hoped. But we find this idea that uh, appears many, many times throughout the Hebrew scripture that the concept of hope always arrives in double strength. Mm -hmm. That when hope is mentioned, it's it's mentioned with an expression like this, like emphasizing like twice, like here it's, it's kaviti, it's like, like a double, a double measure of strength, right? Um, In Psalm 27, we read, this is a, a very important verse. Hope to Hashem, strengthen yourself, and He will give you courage, and hope to Hashem. So the, the verse begins with the words, that verse in Psalms 27 begins, hope to Hashem, strengthen yourself, and He will give you courage, and hope to Hashem again. What is that? What is that all about? It's a very, very beautiful idea that on the one level, that expression uh, is relating to the phenomena that a person feels that you know, he prays to Hashem, he asks for, for deliverance, and he's not getting answered. He doesn't get the answer that he feels that he was looking for. You know, he feels like this, this is that whole subject that we've also discussed about unanswered prayer. And so there's an idea that um, that expression, hope to Hashem, strengthen yourself and he will give you courage, and hope to Hashem is conveying this idea that when prayer seems unanswered, even when your hope is not fulfilled, keep on hoping and do it again and keep praying mm-hmm. and never, never um, give up at all. There's an expression our sages say, even when 
Our sages say, even when a sword is on a person's throat, he should never give up. There's this, this uh, ideal of realizing that everything can change in a moment and that right. how it's absolutely forbidden to give in to any sense of, of hopelessness. Yeah. And, you know, I think the, the tool that, that people like the, like the woman that sent you the email, uh, a, a tool that I use, and we've talked about this before, is the, the fact that when the world around you doesn't make any sense, that you should you could you should actually don't give in to hopelessness. That's a sign that that Hashem is is on the job. I don't know any other way to put it. It's it's Hashem moving right. things around. I mean, this is it's like aha. That's why things are the way they are. In fact, she should in a in a in small measure she should even take comfort, even though she doesn't feel it, in the fact that she she what she should be worried about. Is if she if she's apathetic, if she doesn't care what's going on, if you if all of this going on around us right today, just like no oh, whatever, that's a sign of a person who's in trouble, because we should be sensitive enough to know that things are changing. They're changing rapidly, and I always think of Daniel uh, when when Daniel talked about in uh, specifically talking about the future that knowledge would increase. I mean, boy, we're getting we're getting that tenfold. It seems like the information age is upon us. Information is everywhere. We're overwhelmed with it, and to me, it's just uh, it, it's it's if if you can't see the footsteps of Mashiach in all of this, then you, then you need to start looking for ways to to view it in that light. So, first of all, you're, you're so spot on with what you're saying because. And I've said this myself to many people recently, like with everything that's going on around us being so bizarre, so out of control, so absolutely ridiculous <laughs> how things, mm-hmm. things are so contrived and don't make any sense and how people seem to be buying it and going along with it with so, so much that's, that's being um, perpetrated. The only explanation is that it's Hashem and Hashem alone because it's so bizarre, yeah. but there's absolutely no other explanation. And so that's very comforting to know that obviously Hashem has taken over because it's not on cruise control. You know, there's nothing automatic here. Hashem yeah. is in charge. But the other thing that I want to mention regarding the second thing that you, that you said, you know, uh, is such an important idea that sometimes a person does feel far from, far from God and feels, you know, alone and bereft mm-hmm. it's a it's a um uh, a challenge that we all face and as we'll speak about a little bit later in, regarding the second passover it's actually a, a device that's used against us you know to make us feel that that we have no hope you know but the truth is that according to our sages you know a person who feels like very confident and very close to god and very uh, kind of like is able to strut and say like you know like I uh, you know we're very close you know me and God I'm very very close that person is not so close yeah because yeah. the closer a person feels and the more that they feel accomplished in in their relationship with Hashem that's not a good sign because it's not really possible you know in other yeah. words we we get a little bit of a we get a little bit of a glimpse and we try to get as close as we can but when a person becomes like arrogant about about their own spirituality 
That's not real. That's a sign that that person is, is a charlatan and maybe fooling themselves. But the beautiful thing that, that our wise men tell us is that when a person feels like, I don't, I'm very far from Hashem. When a person feels like I'm, I'm stranded, I'm, I'm stuck, I'm very far from God, I'm, um, you know, separated, separated from Him, that's actually a very good sign. Mm-hmm. And that the further that a person feels away, the closer that that person really is, because that's what, that's what it's all about. It's about looking at ourselves and realizing how, who we are, how far we are, how vulnerable we are, and crying out to Hashem. And one of the, one of the great uh, Hasidic leaders used to say that God has no vessel in this world as whole as a broken heart. Right. And that a, a broken heart it holds everything, and that the, the further that a person feels away, the more that person really is growing closer to God. So that's all very encouraging on the backdrop of this, of this, um, this topic of, of hopelessness and hope. But again, getting back to, uh, to what Torah tells us, and I mentioned, I mentioned these verses that King David is basically telling us, both in Psalms 40, um, verse 2, and in Psalms 27, you know, uh, even when the first hope is not fulfilled, a person should basically never give up. We, we find Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 9 says, And they will say on that day, Behold, this is our God. We hoped to him and he, that he would save us. This is Hashem to whom we hoped. Let us exult and be glad in his salvation. And again, the words here that I'm using, saved and salvation, these are not in the, in the non-Jewish context, but the, the, the expression here is, save, save us from what, Jim? Save us from what? Save us from ourselves. Save us from the hopelessness of the human condition and, and exalt us in our understanding. Again, what is the, what is the whole um, major theme of this verse? They will say on that day, behold, this is our God. We hoped to him that he would save us. This is Hashem to whom we hoped because the whole goal of the human experience is to recognize who God is. That's the whole idea. That's what it really means to be saved. And global redemption that we've been speaking about so much in recently is when humanity achieves a level of understanding the purpose of creation, that there's really only one God and that we are all part of him and that we have an assignment to grow as close to him as we can in this world. So I, I just want to say that there's a, a climax to all of this. Um, and it's, a, it's a, an amazing verse in Zechariah 9 and verse 12, right? Which is, by the way, a messianic prophecy. The, that whole chapter in, of Zechariah 9 begins as clearly as a prophecy of, of the messianic advent. This is one verse. It's so amazing. It says, return to, return to the fortress, you prisoners of hope. <laughs> it's a very, very amazing expression, asire tikva. And the prophet in Hashem's name calls Israel prisoners of hope. And it is such an evocative and amazing um, appellation. The Midrash says that, that even if all we had was hope, in, for that reason alone, the redemption would come in the merit of that hope. In other words, what that verse is basically saying by calling Israel prisoners of hope is that this quality, this, this, this um, descriptor, you know, this attribute that is particularly um, applicable to Israel is our greatest strength. It's, it's a part of our identity. It's, it's part of what we have to strive for all the time until the point that we're literally like 
but a prisoner in a good way, meaning that we are like, that's where we are. That's where we're stuck. We are bound mm. to this world and anchored with hope. That is our banner. That's all we have. That's what it means to be a prisoner of hope. Mm-hmm. And it's so, it's so amazing because a person, you know, the Midrash continues and says, you know, we're waiting for redemption. <laughs> like, and, the, and it's very um, poetic, the expression, like summer, summer came and summer went, fall came and fall, and fall went. When is it coming already? And that's when David said, again, hope to Hashem, uh, be strong and, and strengthen your heart and hope to Hashem and keep on hoping. And that's, that's really the idea of this, of this, um, this verse in Zechariah that that our whole lives are built on this situation of hope, this this goal, this this aspiration of of hoping to Hashem all the time. It's it's uh, one of the commandments that we have all every day that in our daily prayers in the Amidah we actually say. We have for your saving. We have hoped all the day, and we are waiting for your help. It's like a it's like a a goal, a goal of our lives is every day to wait, to be waiting on Hashem. Mm-hmm. But that has that has uh, tremendous um, um, ramifications that I want to that I want to describe. But please, well, no, I was <clears throat> I was just going to add that it, you know the opposite, sort of the the uh, 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 sort of symbolic opposite of a lack of hope is the golden calf. You basically have you basically we, we were shown our, our the, the lesson from the the tale of the golden calf is the fact that that the people that fell prey to wanting to construct this thing, they were waiting for the return of someone that they were they began to worship a physical being. That's what they were in danger of, or they had actually fallen prey to it. And so they needed something, and they lost hope. They thought, he's not going to return. So, so what did they do? Rather than hope and, and believe and hope that he would return, and that, that they were there at the mountain of God, and that Hashem would, would take care of them, that he was under their protective care, they forgot all that and said, no, we need, to, we need something we can touch and smell and taste. And out of that came came the golden calf, which had, which very representative of what was going, you know, the gods of Egypt. You know, a couple of them are, you know, that you have the Pharaoh who represents, you know, the uh, the holy bull, and then his companion is Hathor, you know, the feminine aspect of that. So that's what happened. And that's what the present world is doing. They are the golden calf. They they want to take our eyes off of heaven and they want us to look down and they, they want us to say that the physical world is is your hope. And by the way, we're going to help you. We're gonna we're building one for you. So just do what we say. And and uh, the the famous words of one of our previous presidents is the government will take care of you. <laughs> Which I think are the most terrifying words in the English language myself. So right. I think it was Ronald Reagan who quipped that those were the most terrifying words as well. He said, um, uh, the most terrifying words are, I'm from, we're from the government, we're here to help you. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. You don't want to hear that anymore because it's, it's just taken on an even darker aspect. So um, these words that we intone every day in our daily prayers, you know, that we wait for you all the day, that we hope for you all the day, they're, they also reflect this... This teaching that our sages tell us that when a when a soul leaves the world, when a person comes before Hashem, um, there's a question that's asked to every person. 
This is a very, very beautiful and powerful teaching. There's a question that's asked to every person. In the There's a few questions. And one question is, did you wait for, the word is, the, the word is salvation, really. Did you anticipate salvation? Did you anticipate, anticipate help, really? Did you hope? Were you filled with hope? So one way of looking at that is, the question is, you know, did you wait every day for the redemption? Did you wait for Mashiach to come? Did you wait? Did you, was it just like a, a, a theoretical idea to you? Was it just something that you learned? Was it just something that, you know, you're supposed to say? Or did you actually feel it every single day that you're waiting on Hashem, that you're waiting to see that? The deeper level of that state of that question that a person is asked in the next world is: Did you did you anticipate the resurrection? Because that's really the total upending of despair. In mm -hmm. other words, the 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 um, the the polar opposite of of um, falling into the depths of of um, of, of, of of misery and despair over death, which the Kohanim are commanded to stay away from, is the belief that one day the dead will come to life, which is a fundamental belief of, of the Torah, right? The proof of the eternity of life is, is, is really what it is. But another even deeper level of this question that a soul is asked is, on every level of your life, did you hope? And that's what it really means, that verse in Zechariah, that we are prisoners of hope. That, 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 that has to be the, the basic um, motivation and the underpinning and the fuel that... that that um, motivates us every day of our lives, and I'm 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 bringing it up in the in the context of the framework of the of the direction that the world is taking. We have to take the opposite side. We have to take the opposite side, and that is to be prisoners of hope. Yeah, a reason a reason to get up in the morning. That's that's what that's what I used to tell my kids is they needed they needed to live a life where they were looking forward to getting out of bed every morning because I, I saw them, you know, getting out of bed at 10, 11, 12. And I thought, <laughs> you know, and that's what depressed people do. Depressed people stay in bed and they sleep because they, because they have no reason to get up. And, and, um, and it's, a, you know, I think we all know it's a, it's a real uh, me mental state and it translates into you becoming sick and opening yourself up to, other types of, uh, for want of a better word, impurities, and 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 the the Kohanim recognized this, and that's the reason that they had to maintain that 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 mindset is because who were who were Israel sent to when they had an affliction? We forget that priesthood sometimes has, has such an an overwhelming sort of religious connotation to it. The Kohanim were more than just. Um, than just uh, uh, like a preacher, they were. You went to them when you had an affliction, and you right. said, "What have you know, Rabbi, Doctor Rabbi? What have I got?" And and you you want someone who they were more than functionaries of ritual. They were they were spiritual mentors and spiritual and spiritual guides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they recognized that you couldn't separate the spiritual from the physical. Which is again what this present world system wants us to do. They want us to separate it. They they and they have put they put belief in God way over on the back burner, and they might as well. Many of them, it's not even on the back burner, because as as long as they can remove that hope, 
then they then we can be their prisoners. So I think we have to get up every morning and choose who are we going to be prisoners to? The world system that wants to dominate us and and counts us as um, assets on a ledger sheet, or do we want to be prisoner to the creator of time and space? You know. And again, you just you understanding the use of, of Zechariah's use of the word prisoner. I think what it really means that we're prisoners of hope is like that we are total. That that is our essence. That that mm-hmm. is our our total focus. That that's that's really what powers us. We're completely completely locked in on this uh, vision of of hope of hopefulness. Right. Yeah, we're captured so, by it. You know, that's what a prisoner is. Yeah. A prisoner is. Is, is held captive to an idea. And maybe that's a more positive way to say it, but I mean, that's, that's what's going to ultimately um, help us every day to face these things that this, this woman who, who was feeling so much pain. I hope she's listening to that. I hope we, can, I hope we are helping her a little bit, you know. She is very, very sincere. And again, I, I left out uh, some things that she's really looking for for Hashem in her life and her place in the world. And I'm sure that she'll be blessed to find that. Um, she's a very wonderful person. Um, the The theme that we're talking about, I think, comes to two crescendos in the in the Torah portion, because in the beginning of chapter twenty four, we suddenly are, are told that Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, command the children of Israel that they shall take for you pure olive oil pressed for illumination to, kin- to kindle a continual lamp. So we had the actual instructions for the, for the um, construction of the menorah, the temple mm-hmm. um, candelabra earlier in the book of Exodus. But now we're being told about the concept of keeping it lit. Aaron yeah. shall arrange it from evening to morning before Hashem continually, an eternal decree for your generations. So there is a, an idea that uh, when the temple is standing, for example, it's basically closed for business during, during, the, during the night. You know, the offerings are only during the day. Mm-hmm. And the only part of the temple service that is really done at night, you know, that is, that is uh, an evening type of activity, is that the menorah is lit and is kindled the whole night, Right. And the sages famously say, quip, you know, like Hashem needs the light to see. Like, does he, why is there a lamp lit in the holy temple all night long? And the idea is that that is the light that represents the divine presence coming out into the world. You know, the famous teaching from the verse in, in the book of Kings that the windows in Solomon's temple were, right. were built especially uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a strange way because normally the function of a window is that it allows the light coming from outside to illuminate the, the inside but like these windows like were shaped like funnels like yeah. narrow on the inside and wide on the outside because their whole purpose was for the light shining from inside to go out into the world right, right? Yeah. so here this is basically a, again a call of lighting up the world and that's what we're really supposed to be doing that's the function of the temple it's the function of the priesthood it's the function of of israel is supposed to be lighting up the world bringing the world to a realization of hashem's presence right yeah. Yeah, and there's a there's a, a great connection between uh, the reading about the instructions about lighting the menorah and the counting of the Omer. Right. And do you want to take it? Do you want me to? I, I've got no, something you, to share you, about you, please. that. <laughs> I, th- this is so wonderful. The, the if you look at the the way the menorah is constructed, uh, there are twenty two cup shaped 
uh, items or components of the menorah. And then there's 11 knobs that, that, are, that are representative of the bulb of the almond uh, blossom. There are nine blossoms. There are seven uh, lamp pipes that, that get, raise up and, and support all these. And that's 49 components of the menorah. And uh, uh, I don't know if our, all of our audience knows this, but when you, uh, after the, uh, is it, uh, isn't it after the counting of the Omer? Psalm 67 is read. And uh, I know we have an illustration we want to show while we talk about this because right. we were talking about this before the show. <clears throat> and I was, and the other thing about the other connection is it's so wonderful, <clears throat> is that Psalm 67, once you, once you get past the opening sort of uh, statement or presentation or preamble that all the Psalms have, there are 49 words in, the, in this very short uh, blessing that is read uh, on the counting of the 49 days of Omer. And, and it has right. a messianic aspect to it. And I and I'm gonna I'm gonna read it. <clears throat> excuse me, very quickly. <clears throat> For the conductor with with uh, Negonus a psalm a song, may God favor us and bless us. May He illuminate His countenance with us. Selah, to make known Your way on earth among all nations, Your salvation. The peoples will acknowledge You, O God. The people will acknowledge You, all of them. Regimes will glad will be glad and sing for You. Enjoy, because you will judge the people fairly and guide with fairness the regimes on the earth. Selah. The people will acknowledge you, O God. The people will acknowledge you, all of them. The earth will have a uh, have yielded its produce. May God, our God, bless us. May God bless us. And may all the ends of the earth fear him. And, and so you, messianic in, ter- in, the, in, in terms of the fact that this is a vision of the whole world. Yeah. Coming to Hashem, yeah. which of course is the main, the main job of Mashiach is to bring the whole yeah. world to a recognition. And you were so telling me about the words, to, the way they're arranged. Right. So, so what you're referring to, uh, for those that are that are not familiar, there's a, there is a special meditation that we recite after the counting of the Omer. Uh, it's in finer sidurim. You can find it, uh, and it, and it has to do again with the whole concept of the levels that we are uh, that we are approaching within our emotive attributes that we are different refractions of divine attributes as divine light that we are commanded to emulate Hashem. That's the, the that's our whole goal is to emulate Hashem. And the, the days of the counting of the Omer, they have so many different levels of meaning because on the one hand, it's just this excitement and enthusiasm and anticipation of counting towards the festival of weeks, towards Shavuot, when we receive the Torah. But it's also associated with these 49 levels because, again, when Israel left Egypt, they were they were taken out very quickly and and they accelerated very quickly spiritually but then they kind of they kind of regressed and in order to to build ourselves up spiritually these are these are special days like we called it several weeks ago the days of the clearing of the rocks of the field these are days that that are given over to our we have an opportunity to really address all sorts of of um, issues and it's it's a time of tremendous spiritual growth so there is a meditation that we recite after the, the counting every day that reflects on how we were trying to make a rectification for that particular level. And there is a, an ancient connection between Psalm 67 and this process of spiritual refinement that we're reflecting on as we're counting the Omer. So you, you were referring actually to this um, that I have yeah. actually right here. Mm-hmm. 
Um, this is a parchment, and it's a handwritten rendition of Psalm 67 in the shape of the menorah. On top, it actually says, um, um, I have placed Hashem before me always from Psalms and some, some other important uh, ideas. But this co whole concept of Psalm 67 being shaped like a menorah is a, a very ancient secret. It's actually connected to the original idea of the, of the shield of David. That when, that when David had a shield that he took out to battle, it wasn't with uh, what's normally called uh, the Jewish star, right? Mm -hmm. But it was actually this image of Psalm 67 shaped like the menorah. And as you mentioned, there are actually 49 words in the psalm. And the middle branch of the menorah actually has 49 letters. It's amazing. So there's a, a whole idea of this uh, special intention, kavana, which is everything, the, the intention that a person has, as we are reflecting on this process of spiritual growth, that we are kind of plugging in spiritually to a different one of these words every day. And again, this is a, a whole idea of this, this vast spiritual cleansing and power that, this, that, the, that the Book of Psalms has. And this is a, a very ancient tradition, the visualization, actually, of Psalm 67 in the form of the menorah. But again, it's the theme of divine light. Amen. And that is the original David shield because it's about bringing Hashem's light into the world. That's what wins the battle. Yeah, and I think also there are seven. Uh, when you in, in the Zohar, they uh, there is a, a likening to the seven uh, the, the connection to the menorah. One of the there's many connections uh, spiritually and 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 uh, other aspects of it. But one of them is that the there are seven aspects. Of the the sirot that that are invoked when you look at the at the, the emotive attributes, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's how that's how chapter twenty four begins. It begins with the light of the menorah, which again represents the hope of mankind uh, knowing Hashem, and then we have something very very unusual, which I think is is really a bookend to the beginning of the parsha, where we were speaking about the Kohanim and their injunction to stay away from the illusion of death, just as, just as we received now in the beginning of chapter 24, for the first time, the commandment of illuminating the menorah, so too we receive the commandment of baking the showbread. Yeah. So just as we received the construction of the menorah back in the book of Exodus, so too we received the construction of the table. But now we're actually receiving the instruction for baking the showbread. So the showbread were 12 loaves mm -hmm. that were baked in a special way, 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And there is a positive commandment for these loaves to be placed on the table on the eve of Shabbat is when they're baked. And they're kept there the entire week. And if they're, you know, in English, they're called, they're called showbread. In Hebrew, it's lechem hapanim. So one reason is because... It, it is shaped a certain way that it has different facets, right? It's, it's shaped in a very unique shape. It has different sides. But it's also facing Hashem, as it were, and it's to, it's to be displayed before Him in the holy area all week long. So one of the miracles that our sages relate regarding the showbread on the, on the table in the holy temple was that it stayed hot the entire week. Yeah. It stayed hot and fresh the entire week. Again, above time and space and, and really demonstrating Hashem's presence because it was not uh, in the least bit uh, cooling off or getting uh, old or moldy or anything like that. And it's a, it's a very specific uh, concept because the showbread also, just like everything in the temple, 
you know, stands for many things and has many levels of meaning. The showbread really represents Hashem's blessing in the material world. You yeah. know, Hashem's blessing in the, in the on the the level of the of the physical, and the so co the co-creation aspect. Right, because here people, ordinary people, baked the, the showbread, and yet right. it was kept. It was kept. He, he gives. Week. He gives us the 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 when we plant wheat. Uh, he he's the one that brings the rain. Hashem brings it. You know, basically deciding whether it grows or not. We have faith that it will, and then we we use technology, so to speak, to turn that wheat into uh, this thing called bread. It's just, so like you said, it's many concepts wrapped up in it. Right. You know. So all of a sudden, after this, this commandment of, the, of uh, making the bread, then we have one of the very few um, kind of anecdotal stories in the book of Vayikra, right? The yeah. book of Leviticus is much different than the book of Genesis. It's much different than the book of Exodus. It doesn't have a lot of stories. Mm -hmm. it's, mostly, it's mostly commandments. We had the story of Nadav and Avihu, and now all of a sudden we have a story, and it's a strange kind of tale, and we're not sure exactly what to make of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a lot of detail is given in the in the written text. It's but it was, it's called the blasphemer. Yeah, and it's a person, a, the son of an Israelite woman went out. He was the son of an Egyptian man. Among the children of Israel, they fought in the camp. The son of the Israelite woman and an Israelite man. And the son of the Israelite woman pronounced the name, and blasphemed, yeah. blasphemed, right? Which makes it sound like it basically cursed Hashem, right? Yeah. That's what that's what it says. So they brought him to Moshe. The name of his mother was Shilomit, daughter of Divri of the tribe of Don. And placed him under guard to find out what should be done with him. It's the first time that somebody had the audacity to to speak against Hashem. Right. So that notwithstanding, in other words, again, there are many many lessons here, many levels of meaning. Who was he? Why did he do that? What did he say? Why is his mother's name mentioned? Uh, what are we supposed to learn from that? Everything here has a tremendous amount of, of meaning. Big backstory. There's one particular... <laughs> yes. But, but again, uh, you know, it's almost limitless. Every word mm -hmm. of Torah, there's, there's so many levels of meaning. But there's one particular teaching that I find very fascinating regarding this incident, right? And that's this, this, this midrash that tells us in the name of one particular sage, Rabbi Barachia, that he taught that the, the subject of his scoffing and, and mocking Hashem, as it were, the subject of his blasphemy was the showbread. The showbread, exactly. Yeah. And, that's, and, he, and, and, the, and the rabbi understands that because of the juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. So that's his understanding, that, that it follows the, the commandment of the showbread because basically what this lawless fellow was doing was he was going around. Don't forget, this is the first time that the mitzvah of the showbread was given. Yeah. Nobody knew how it would come out, right? God is saying, you know, make this bread and leave it there for me all week long. And so, he, so this midrash is telling us that his blasphemy was that he was saying, this bread is going gonna, is gonna to be cold. Yeah. Why serve God it's, cold bread? Exactly. <laughs> it's such an amazing teaching. And it's, it's even right here in the art scroll. Yeah. It says, uh, he, he taught that the son of the Israelite woman went about in the camp scoffing about the showbread. And he said, a king normally eats warm, freshly baked bread. Why should God have old, cold bread in the tabernacle? Mm -hmm. And so an Israelite rebuked him. The two came to blows, whereupon the son of the Israelite woman uttered the curse. But I think the curse was this this very idea about the bread. But it's much, much deeper, and it actually fits in so perfectly with, this is like the an 
antithesis, antithesis yeah. of, of, of our whole theme. It's the anti-theme. There's the theme and there's the bookend. There's the anti-theme to show, mm-hmm. to show us what the whole idea is about. Because what, what is everything that I've been trying to say so far today in, in our meeting? What is it all about? It's about the fact that what, what really should uplift us and raise us above the, not only the mundanity and banality, but about the despair that is intrinsically a part of the human condition if we cut ourselves off from Hashem. And if we fall, allow ourselves to fall into the whole spiral of uh, thinking that, you know, this is it and that, and that um, everything is, is basically... Uh, just doomed to to to, to wither, right? Mm-hmm. The antidote to that is to understand that this that the soul is precious and eternal and forever, which is again the first instructions to the Kohanim. Forget about death. That's nothing to do with anything. It's a rebirth. It's a it's a a new beginning. And this this whole idea of all of the verses that I I, I brought from the Psalms and, and Zechariah that the the whole banner, as it were, our whole reason for being our whole goal in this world is to understand that living being alive for Hashem is something that fills us up with hope and no matter what the situation no matter what we see no matter how forlorn the situation seems to be we never we never give up hope as the as the holy rabbi nachman brought to the world this very important teaching that you mm-hmm. can never despair that there's no such thing in the world as hopelessness yeah. And so, and so the, I think that's what's so deep about this particular teaching. And again, the order of chapter 24, how f- we have the menorah. Okay, so there is, again, the challenge of realizing that everything is about bringing Hashem's light into the world. And then we have the bread, which is a physical manifestation on a miraculous level of Hashem's interest in this world, right? Right. And then you have this guy who comes along and he says, are you kidding? Yeah. Are you kidding? But this is the deep thing is, it's like so open up your heart in the deepest way because he wasn't just saying... The bread is going to get cold. What he was really saying was, Hashem doesn't care about this world. Yeah, amen. Because by the because by the bread being hot and fresh all week long, what does that mean? Why did Hashem make that miracle? Because He wants to be here. He wants to be represented. He wants to show us that He loves this world, that He will bless the physical realm as well. That He can, that is that His presence can be sensed through the through the murkiness of the material. Right. So this guy is coming along and he's saying like, get real. That's ridiculous. Not just that the bread is going to be cold because I don't believe that God is going to make a miracle. I don't believe he wants to. Meaning, it's again, it's that voice of despair and of hopelessness and of like, what's the use? What's the use? Why do you think that, that he would be interested in your measly, puny attempt to sanctify him in this world? But that's all we have is our own right. humanity that we use to raise everything up. And so it's it's such an unbelievable insight that this Midrash is giving us that that was his bone of contention because it wasn't about the bread. It was about what it represents, which is, no, I don't believe that God even cares about this world at all. I don't. So therefore, that opens up a, a door to, to the total unraveling of, of a human being. Because as soon as you believe that we're alone here and Hashem doesn't care about anything, then you have basically a vision of the dystopian world that this seems to be becoming all around yeah. us. Yeah. He'd given he'd given in to hopelessness, which is exactly what we're talking about. One thing that that I appreciate about this particular uh, event in in this parsha is that if you read closely, you'll see something that is uh, very interesting 
about the uh, the the Torah form of of government and the Torah the Torah court system. It's revealed to us in this parsha because if you read closely, it says that uh, Moses had the people who witnessed this put their hands on his head. And I think it's very interesting. And if you read over it, you don't you you miss a very important thing about a, a court system that is very fair. And and we just got through reading in Psalm sixty seven how fair God is. So there's that nice sort of connection too. And what uh, what I'm trying to express is the idea that this man was not he, you know he was stoned to death for doing this, and but he, it 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 didn't happen because. It happened because it was it was witnesses plural. There were two a minimum of two witnesses. In our court system, you can be convicted with one witness, but in the this, the court system of Torah, you have to have two witnesses. And the reason that they put their hands on him is that th- those were the ones who were who were firsthand witnesses, who were involved in him being convicted after being tried, and they had to help with his carry out his sentence. That's why. That's why, and that's that. That's a, a, a. It shows how incumbent it is in a fair court system that the witnesses uh, take are, are very mindful about being good witnesses mm-hmm. and being fair witnesses. Because if you are going to condemn someone, if if we were to carry out the the court system according to Torah, uh, if I witness somebody that, that murdered someone. And we were doing. We were going to put them in the electric chair. I would have to join the other witness, and we would have to throw the switch. How many people could do that? Right. You know, it's a, it's an, an awesome responsibility. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I think the crescendo of everything that we're discussing, which is so amazing because it's it's all dovet- dovetails, is this week. Beginning Thursday night, Friday, May 5th, is the unsung holiday of the second Passover. Yeah. The second Passover is a very, very amazing day. We read in Numbers chapter 9 how the children of Israel in their second year in the wilderness brought the Passover offering in the desert, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden we read in chapter 9 and verse 6 that there were certain men who again were contaminated by death. And they were not able to bring the Passover offering on the 14th of Nisan, but they came forward and they said, why should we be diminished by not offering Hashem's offering in its appointed time, right? So in other words, they felt that they were being left out of something very important because after all, the Passover offering is, as we've described it, it is like uh, absolutely the national identity of the children of Israel because it's, the whole, it's reflective of their whole calling to, to slaughter idolatry and to stand up for Hashem's honor. The Passover offering is extremely uh, intrinsically bound up with the identity of Israel. So they were like, it's not our fault that we were contaminated by death. There's a question of, again, the, it's very skeletal in the actual scripture. What, what were they doing? So it's one opinion that they were the ones that were dealing with the corpses of Nadav and Avihu. Mm-hmm. There's another idea that they were dealing with the, with the coffin of Joseph. In any event, they were, they were um, through no, no fault of their own, they were not able to bring the Passover offering. And so Moshe says, wait here, and I'll go ask just wait, stand here, and I'll go ask, right? And Hashem basically made a whole new commandment in the Torah, which is this whole concept of the second Passover on the 14th of Iyar, which is this month. 
it is a special accommodation, not for the entire community, but for individuals that were not able to bring the first Passover. They don't actually have the whole Seder, you know, but they do have, they do have that offering with the matzah and the bitter herb. The only real difference is that the Passover offering that's brought on time, so one is not allowed to eat chametz with it, and one is also not allowed to own any, any leaven whatsoever within their borders. But if it's brought on the second Passover, so one cannot eat it together with chametz, but one could still own the leaven at that time. Yeah. So, but in any event, the point is this. This is completely unprecedented, that, because we know about the offerings in the Holy Temple that they have a, a shelf life. You know, They have a very specific time by, by which they're supposed to be consumed and burnt on the altar, and there was never such an idea that if you missed it, well, maybe later you could make it up. But Moshe said, you know what, that's a good question, I'm going to go and ask. And then Hashem basically uh, agreed, and he made this new commandment in the Torah, mm-hmm. which we like to fondly refer to as the holiday of second chances. Yeah. But the beautiful thing about it is that, that it is, first of all, I think it speaks powerfully on a spiritual level to every person, because... This is a major theme in Torah that Hashem does give us a second chance and it fits in very, very strongly with everything that we've been discussing about the sanctity of hope that has to be enshrined as the highest ideal that we never give up hope, that we're always returning to that concept and praying and praying again and looking forward to Hashem's redemption in every way, not only in terms of the ultimate redemption, in terms of the resurrection of the dead, in terms of all the principles of faith, but on every level of our own life, we are prisoners of hope. But here the idea is that Hashem made this special new facet of Torah forever. It's for all generations. It's part of Torah forever. It reminds us of the daughters of Tzalafchad, yeah. who also initiated, uh, initiated something new in the Torah. But here, you know, the question could be asked, well, if God knew, and of course he did know that he was going to do this, why did he wait? <laughs> in other words, if he knew that there was a, a valid reason to make an, a, 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 something called the second Passover, which is another opportunity to bring the offering, why did he wait to be asked? Why, isn't it, why wasn't it originally part of the commandment? And, and the answer that I think is so profound is that, yeah, he gives us a second chance, but even for the second chance, he waits for you to ask for it. Yeah. He waits for us to ask for it. And so... And so this whole concept of this new commandment that was instituted for all time was all due to them. Yeah, and and the uh, we we have the uh, Seder Haolam, which gives us which brings in another interesting aspect to this this event, and and it uh, reminds us that uh, Moses actually uh, prepared the Paraduma on the uh, the second Nisan this year later. So that these men now could, I mean, that, that was a, a, a stumbling block that was kind of cleared out of the way. They could be purified because they now had the, the water of purification Ability. created by right. the ashes of the red heifer, the Pradama. And there's another level altogether, which is absolutely so amazing. And again, we're taking this whole idea of this, of this I call it this unsung festival that's coming up this week. And it's a Friday, and it's just a biblical date. The 14th of Iyar is the day of the second Passover, mm-hmm. but it actually is a day of tremendous divine portent because every person is in a situation that they really don't want to give up hope, everything that we're discussing now, but that weight is against us so powerfully. But this day is kind of shines a special light of, 
of hope, of, of getting out of whatever place that we're in, that we're stuck in. But there's, and again, it's on the framework of, the, of this whole concept of ER, the month of healing, and everything that we're going through in these days of the counting of the Omer and that whole spiritual process. But there's another dimension which is utterly, rivetingly fascinating. And that is that when we read back in Exodus in chapter 17 and verse 8, that Amalek attacked the Jewish people. Mm. Right? Exodus 17, 8, that the Israelites were attacked by Amalek. And you know that Amalek is the greatest enemy of hope. Yes. You know that. Amalek, the gematria, the numerical value of the word Amalek is safik, which means doubt. Doubt, yeah. Because there's whole, their whole <clears throat> thing is like, well, you know, maybe God doesn't love you. Maybe he's not here. Maybe, maybe there is no hope whatsoever. And that's this terrible power of the spirit of Amalek. And so they came and they attacked Israel, and it was that day. It was the 14th of Er, which is so unbelievable because, because their whole idea is to uh, instill this terrible feeling of isolation and vulnerability and doubt, which is everything that we've been talking about, which is like the, the biggest plague in the world and which the, pass, the second Passover comes to address that there is no, there is no giving up. So I, I think that this day is, should be celebrated by every person because it is, it is basically a, a, applies to every, every person. You know, we can see ourselves in the story also. Every person feels impure at some point and says, like, who am I? You yeah. know, he doesn't want my service. I'm late. You know, he, 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 this doesn't mean me. I can't find my place. And the idea is that the second Passover idea is like a beacon that calls out to us to, to, and reminds us of what we've been discussing, that the further away that you feel, the more Hashem actually wants us. So he knew that this would happen, and yet he waited for this small group to initiate this tremendous spiritual revolution, which is in itself such an amazing idea, because even when it comes to giving us a second chance, he's like... I'll give it to you if you just ask. Yeah. If you just ask me, of course I'll give you a second chance, but we have to do the work in this world. We, ha- we have to initiate, right? We have to be the ones that, that, that open up the door for us, yeah. for ourselves. Yeah, because we're still, we're still you know, co-creators, even in that aspect. You know, it, it's, I think that's the secret. God's... It's, it's God's way. That's why I always believe that, you know, we have many levels of Torah for every verse and, and um, 49 levels of, of interpretation. And, or is it 50? Maybe it's 50, but 49. 70. 70? Oh, 70. Okay. Uh, I always heard 50 for some reason. I don't know why. But anyway. 50 is a good number. Yeah, it's a good number. But the anyway, I say all that to say that every time I see in, in Breshit, in Genesis, where it says, let us make man in our image. I have this idea that God is also speaking to us. You know, to, to that, to, to, he, it's almost like that's what's spoken to our soul before it's first sent into the world. Okay, before you go, let's make, let's make this man that you're going to become, or woman, into the image, you know. And he says, you know, be holy as I'm mm-hmm. holy. That's what God is saying to people. That's such a beautiful idea. So. Beautiful. I just want to say to our listeners also that um, several years ago, I I gave a full-length, hour-long Zoom class just on the concept of the second Passover, and I went into it very deeply. Anybody that's listening that would like 
to receive a copy of that video, uh, and we really went uh, on a, in, in a deep level into the whole concept of the second Passover, I'll be glad to send it to them so they can email us, rabbi, rabbi at rabbiruchin.com. I'll be glad to send, send along that video of a special class about the second Passover. Nice. And in the meantime, James, yes. it's wonderful to see you. Uh, let's not give up hope. Let's mm-hmm. rally and be courageous and strong of heart and look to Hashem and all of our listeners too. Let's bless them with a, a beautiful week of looking to Hashem for hope in every area of life and renewal on the second Passover and remembering that we always have a second chance. Amen. Shalom. Shalom.